the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, we look at the future in 2024 for renewables and the challenges in the bush and on farms. And also we hear from a couple of young fellows who've taken over the running of the only butcher shop left in Canoundra. Man, well, he had lambs out there and I said, these are good lambs. I said to well, let's just find a way that we can start butchering them. I said, go into the local butcher. He can't be open seven days a week and ask uh, if we can just cut up one day a week. Uh, Walt came in and had a chat to him. The next thing, we were on the phone to him as he was explaining the shops for sale. He went to auction, and uh, I think that just after the auction, me and Walt went, oh, oh, my God, I think we just bought a butcher shop, mate. Sounds like they did, and we'll hear more about that story shortly on the program. You can always send me a text, 0467 You might want to talk about renewables. Also, this new firefighting unit uh, changes for farmers as well that's uh, on the program as well 0467 922 but first up 2023 was a massive year for renewable energy in australia but it's going to be even bigger in 2024 the federal government's commitment to tripling renewable energy means that a massive amount of money and resources will be needed over the next decade and it could have massive implications for rural Australia. David Corton reports on developments last year and the outlook for renewables this year. It's been a massive year for renewable energy in Australia, but it's going to be even bigger in 2024. Australia has joined more than 100 countries at the United Nations Climate Summit, pledging to triple global renewable energy generation capacity by 2030. Today, the United States is proud to join more than 115 nations in a commitment to double energy efficiency and to triple renewable energy capacity by 2030. The federal government's commitment at the Global Climate Change Conference COP28 to triple the supply of renewable energy means that a massive amount of money, resources and workers will be needed over the next decade to hit the target. And the current rate of development will have to increase dramatically. It remains to be seen whether that can be achieved. But it's worth looking back at how much progress Australia has been making and what impact that's having in regional areas where much of the infrastructure is going. In April, the Clean Energy Council reported a 17% increase in investment in the sector over the previous year, taking investment to more than $6 billion. 2,000 megawatts of capacity was built across 20 projects in that period, and by October 2023, there were 80 projects under construction or due to start around Australia. That includes wind, solar, hydro and bioenergy projects worth over $21 billion. About a third of Australia's power was coming from renewables in 2022, but the percentage is rising steadily, and some states are moving faster than others. Tasmania already generates almost all of its power from hydroelectricity, while South Australia is ahead of the rest of the pack, generating 75% from renewables. Other states are a long way behind, especially the big coal producers, Queensland and New South Wales. They both have big plans to transition, though. New South Wales has set up several renewable energy zones, or RES, in regional areas, and a number of offshore wind energy zones. Projects are being fast-tracked, and the speed of development has some landholders in those areas worried. I'm so negative regarding this whole thing. It's just, it depresses me, actually, because of fact that I think we're shutting down um, coal-powered plants for, for um, uh, base power and might be another far too quickly. I think 
we just have to sit back for a little while and just it's like charging into anything Grace, before you really know the full ramifications of what the decisions might be at the time that's farmer Dave Huell echoing concern that's shared by many people and politicians. The pace of the transition is also having an impact on major projects like the Snowy Hydro Scheme. Poor decisions led to one of the tunnel borers literally grinding to a halt. Florence is this giant tunnel boring machine. It's 150 metres long. It cost about $150 million. And it's a very sophisticated piece of equipment. And the idea is it will tunnel 15 kilometres through the Kosciuszko National Park from one of the reservoirs to the power station. What Florence needed to go through this soft ground was some really sophisticated infrastructure. And that was called a slurry machine that should have been attached to the back of Florence. Now, not only was that uh, piece of infrastructure not attached, it wasn't on site. Mm. And so that was a really key failing and that it meant that Florence wasn't able to push forward and that it eventually did get stuck just 150 metres into that tunnel in the soft ground. The pumped hydro scheme in the Snowy Mountains is the big battery that the federal government needs to back up the renewable system on the east coast as it's built. But that project is now 10 years behind schedule and $10 billion over budget. Engineers warned the government that not enough was known about the site and the problems they might encounter, but that was ignored in the rush to get the work started. And that's the kind of mistake that could be repeated as the speed of development increases even further across the country. People are especially worried about the massive transmission lines that have to be built to connect these new projects to the grid. The Victorian Farmers Federation President Emma Germano warned about putting transmission lines across farmland. We know as farmers that we need energy. Everybody knows that there's this rollout that needs to occur and, um, you know, people have different opinions about, you know, the, the, the types of renewable energy that are used. What we say at the VFF is that you have to plan for it. You cannot, because of a failure of politics and a failure of policy, now come along, hit the panic button and say we absolutely need to roll out all of this stuff, otherwise the lights are going to turn off and too bad for the farmers. We can't look back on this in 15 or 20 years and say we just bulldoze across farmland that was incredibly valuable. It's had, you know, an impact on food prices and on food security and on regional communities. We can't be looking back in 15 years and saying, oopsie, um, this political situation created that outcome. Plan it right. Acknowledge the people that have to host these things. It is not for farmers to be hosting public infrastructure and not be getting paid for it. That, that's just unacceptable and we'll continue to fight that fight. The Victorian government introduced a scheme in 2023 to pay landholders $8,000 a year per kilometre for 25 years if they're hosting transmission lines. That's similar to New South Wales, which set up a compensation scheme that gives landholders $200,000 per kilometre of transmission hosted, paid over 20 years. Queensland announced an even more generous scheme in 2023, offering an average $300,000 per kilometre. The target in Queensland is to lift renewable energy to 80% of its needs by 2035. A big task, but they have to build 1,500 kilometres of new transmission lines to get there. Another big issue troubling regional communities was how to spread the benefits of big renewables projects. Gabriel Chan has been covering renewable energy for The Guardian for some years. And the big policy argument, I think, uh, debate that's happening right now in the industry, in ag and rural areas in particular, is 
whether we're going to see these decentralised energy systems that basically produce energy so you're not transmitting it down the lines and handing it over to energy companies for very small tariffs, which is what we do every day. Um, I think learning to harness that and decentralise your energy systems, I mean, that's part of Helen Haynes's bill uh, for a local energy agency. And I think you're going to see that right down to individual farms that are going to make their systems more resilient. Because in this environment, after two years of pandemic and what we're watching, uh, you know, with China and the US at the moment, the next 10 or 20 years, I think leading up to 2050, is all about resilience and shortening supply chains and making sure that you can look after yourself. Rural communities are also developing their own renewable energy projects and keeping the benefits local. There are some big projects going through the planning process in New South Wales, including a billion-dollar scheme to build what could be one of the state's biggest wind farms on agricultural land in the Riverina. The proposal for up to 90 wind turbines standing more than 150 metres tall will be able to generate 650 megawatts of electricity. That's enough to power 400,000 homes. Project manager James Hamilton told Emily Doak the site, about 25 kilometres west of Narandra, has been chosen because of its proximity to existing transmission lines and it has support from landholders. At this stage, there's eight individual properties uh, and we're looking to take up roughly 2 or 3% of the area of the farmland that makes up those individual properties. It's very much non-irrigated cropping and grazing land, so that's a key metric that Stromlo Energy are really targeting across all our projects. So stay away from really high-value, high-productivity agricultural land. And so for the farmers, what's the benefit for them in signing up to something like this? Yeah, the commercial value is is probably front and centre for for each individual farmer. Uh, We have a lease agreement that would run for 35 years uh, with the farmer. We pay them an annual lease fee, which is based on on the number of turbines uh, that they're hosting. Uh, That's a really valuable income diversification for farmers to make farming uh, more viable, more sustainable, Stromlo project manager James Hamilton on that big project in New South Wales, one of 80 in the pipeline around Australia. At COP28, the latest global meeting on climate change, they passed a framework on how to adapt to climate change. Resilience is a big part of that agreement, with governments around the world agreeing to work together to build more resilient health, food and environmental systems as the world transitions to renewables. Associate Professor Yana Nalau from the Griffith University was in the United Arab Emirates for the event, where she says Australia played a key role in getting that framework passed. Yeah, absolutely. And there were really just really two big key items um, at the COP. So we had um, on the global stock take, so decisions on reducing emissions. And then the other really key item was the global goal on adaptations. Australia absolutely uh, had a massive role to play at this COP. So what does that actually mean, though, if there's some work on the framework on, on how to adapt to climate change? What sort of things will need to be done? Well, there's lots of um, <laughs> lots of things that that will feed into this. So, for instance, countries are encouraged to have 
uh, national adaptation plan. So we are, are getting the first national adaptation plan uh, end of 2024, same time for, for the next COP. But it's also trying to help countries to coordinate the actions and also thinking about you know, water scarcity, um, water access, what, what does that look like at, at the national level as well? But also it's really trying to get people to start thinking about the global level adaptation as well. Well, in terms of Australia, this last year particularly, there were some big shocks in terms of climate change and Lismore was probably the standout example, mm. but we had a year of record heat as well and uh, another El Nino, record ocean temperatures. Yeah. So. What will happen, do you think, in the next couple of years once we have a framework established? What will, what will be the priorities? Well, the framework, now that, yeah, so now that it has been established, so there will be a two-year work program again. And part of the really key, uh, key work will be on indicators and metrics and approaches. So it's not enough that, <laughs> that we are putting in place adaptation. We also need to understand how we are progressing um, and, and how effective those actions are. How optimistic are people coming away from this COP28 event, given you've seen major benchmarking on what's happening to the soils, you know, emissions not tracking down. You know, we've had record heat where we're already seeing, you know, what 1.5 degrees looks like. Mm. What's the mood? <laughs> so I think the mood is a mixed mood. Um, so just following, following the late last plenary, um, you know, it was really, really tough negotiations to even get the uh, get the wording in about um, about you know phasing down fossil fuels. But I think at the same time, and we know that the intergovernmental panel on climate change has said that we need to reduce emissions um, minus 43 percent. And whereas I think the current pledges that countries have in their nationally determined um, plans is around 8.8 degrees by 2030. It's a long way short. It is. It is a long way short, but I think we also discuss the role of innovation. So I think there is a lot that we can do. And some of the really, really key events at this COP were um, a lot of the side events were around how do we accelerate climate action? How do we accelerate, uh, you know, the moves within the energy sector uh, in particular? So I think we'll see probably a lot more investment, um, but also there's new technologies emerging all the time. So I think it pays attention to also look at, um, you know, what some of those those uh, strategies might be. Apart from big corporates and some community groups getting into renewables, farmers are also making the transition. A leading research agency, AgriFutures, released a series of reports about how to install renewable energy systems while cutting costs. But some farmers say the technology is still too expensive and inefficient. Grace O'Day has more. Despite investing in a battery storage system, Yass farmer Dave Hewlett is concerned the technology isn't there yet to power his farm year-round. We have 120 panels and we're completely off the grid. We have an 18-kilowatt three-phase constant inverter supplying 36 kilowatts peak into the into the um, batteries. We have a it's 146 kilowatt battery storage. There are 24 two-volt lead-acid gel batteries. And we have a 20 kilovolt three-phase um, automatic start generator backing it all up as well. Our house is not enormous. It's, it's 400 square metres. We have a uh, Stevel Ultron uh, heat pump for heating underfloor. It's, we're not using the batteries a lot with underfloor heating. We've put 300 hours per year. There's nearly 900 hours on our generator. 
over winter to um, supplement the um, lack of solar panel power to um, put power into the batteries. AgriFutures Rural Manager Jay Knight says battery storage will be a key step as farmers transition to lower emission energy systems. It allows farmers to be able to store the energy on site. If we're looking at things like solar and wind farming, they're really great opportunities for farmers, but they're only able to produce when the sun is shining or the the wind is blowing, for example. But if we're able to capture that energy on site and it can be used at other times, then it's going to provide a lot more benefit to farmers and a lot more of a reliable source. What obstacles currently face farmers when switching to a battery storage plan? I think one of the biggest obstacles is actually cost. And at the moment, with the way the market is and the way that the policy setting is in place, it means that farmers are having to put a lot of output up front to to bring these batteries on site. But I think in the future, what we're seeing with some of the trends is that the, the cost around batteries will decline over time. And hopefully with the, uh, the, the conversations that are happening with the government, we should be able to see the policy settings change so farmers can be more supported through things like grant programs and things like that. Dairy farmer Cresta Keynes is seeing different results with her battery storage system in the Southern Highlands. There's been a huge, um, huge saving probably in the, in the realm of 70%, in fact, um, energy saving for us. Um, which has just been really fantastic. So the the batteries that we use are all Aussie Tech and they're from a company called Redflow. Um, And they actually use zinc bromide rather than lithium. So the real benefits about that is that not only will they last for decades, they're, they're not flammable at all and they're also made from recyclable materials. A lot of work has been done in the last year or two to see if agriculture can operate alongside renewable energy projects. One promising example is running sheep under solar panels. At Urala's New England solar farm in New South Wales, they plan to have 6,000 sheep roaming amongst the panels by early 2024. Reporter Peter Sanders headed out to see the first 2,000 sheep mustered onto the property. Mustering can be a bit of a challenge at times, but I mean the benefits far outweigh that. We've got protection, shade for the sheep, piers at this stage that there's good grass growth. Simon Wood and his brother Cameron own a sheep farm just outside of Urala. Among their 2,000 head is some of the 1 million panels that make up the New England solar farm. In 2017, we were in the middle of one of the worst droughts ever, and they came and said, we'll give you this much money, and if you want it, you can have it on your place. Obviously, when you've had so many heavy construction vehicles through, there's you know, a few tyre ruts and um, a few patches of, of, of non-growth. But, I mean, we're very early doors into a, a, a long contract. So I imagine that the land will recover over time and uh, that the sheep will see reap the benefits from it. Despite some of the drawbacks, the brothers are expecting some long-term benefits to their land and not just financially. Because the panels are trackers, at some stage during the day there is sun on the grass. I think that the grass growth underneath is just the protection that they'll get also from the shade from the hot days. It won't be drying the ground out underneath them quite as well and then you get the dew off the side of the panels as well. So everything seems to be a win-win. 
So as the renewables boom gathers pace, farmers are dealing with the reality of a changing climate and rank it as the single greatest threat to their business, according to the Farmers for Climate Action Group. They conducted an online survey of over 700 members looking at their attitudes to the federal government's net zero sector plan for agriculture and land, which is being developed now. Chairman of the group, Brett Hall, explains the results. Most farmers are saying that climate change is the biggest threat to their business. Over 55% um, saw that as a, as a key issue, um, whereas a transmission line uh, on farmland, for example, is, is only 1% of responses. There is a lot of heat in that issue, though, isn't there, seemingly? Oh, the, oh there is, um, and certainly Farmers for Climate Action have been looking, pushing forward with a, with a best practice model to be able to sort of um, have consultations with communities and farmers and general landowners about what, what is the best practice and how people can sort of use that sort of a framework to be able to get the best outcomes. So when people, and you're surveying big farms, I imagine some corporate farms as well as you know, smaller family farms, when they're saying that climate change is their biggest threat, why do you think that is? Uh, they're having a lot of climate change affecting their properties. 89% of um, people uh, describe these events as usual or somewhat unusual. And I think it was quite surprising to me personally in that we've had three years of La Nina pattern of weather across Australia, but there's still 39% of the respondents said they have been in drought in this time and 18% have said that they've had bushfires in this time. So we probably were expecting the flooding um, percentage to be high, which was 47%, but it just shows the, the big impacts of climate across farming generally across Australia and huge impacts even in, in a more favourable wetter period. And what about reducing emissions with renewables? Are many doing that? Yes, they are. 64% are planning to invest in future or additional emissions reduction measures. And um, I think also there was 71% of people who have already invested their own money into emission reduction, including solar panels, batteries, electric farm equipment, tree planting and such. But you asked them about sort of the challenges in terms of getting into renewables. What are they saying are the biggest problems? Yeah, well, um, the farmers are saying they've got, you know, some barriers to reducing their emissions on farms. So, for example, a lack of clear government policies or incentives, high upfront costs and limited access to finance to invest in new technology. And then the challenge of measuring and validating these emission changes on their farms. So a net zero sector plan for agriculture and land needs to act on these challenges. So can you break that down a little bit? Like what, what sort of government policies or incentives would be useful to support farmers to get into reducing their emissions okay. in some way? Yeah, well, when, when farmers were asked the best ways to reduce emissions, 65% said promoting biodiversity with mixed species and agroforestry systems on their farms. 60% are saying rehabilitating degraded land and forestry areas is not suited for agriculture. 57% said implementing rotational grazing to enhance pasture health and carbon uptake, and another 53% switching the renewable energy sources like solar and wind for farming operations. Right, and so governments should help in what way? Most of them were sort of saying this, there's a, a number of ways that they can, can do that. Um, incentives, whether that be taxation or subsidies to batteries, that type of thing. It's a bit of a worry though, isn't it, because... It's becoming a mad rush everywhere in the world, including Australia, to try and get this new infrastructure in to make the switch to renewables to have any kind of an impact on climate change. 
And in that mad rush, bad things are happening. And, and the snowy hydro would be a classic example of this. Are you sensing that concern as well about the, the rush that's on in terms of putting renewables into, uh, into country areas? Well, farmers from the, from the survey are certainly telling us that climate change is hurting them right now. And they, they're saying that ag is leading the way in, in reducing pollution, but they certainly want the rest of the economy um, contributing and, and helping address climate change. So agriculture is willing to do their part, but we need everybody else coming along with us. And there is an urgent sense that they need to do it as soon as possible because these impacts are being felt on farms right now. Brett Hall from the Farmers for Climate Action Group. So as efforts around the world to move to renewable energy scales up, Australia will have to make a difficult transition away from coal, which has underpinned both the electrical supply and the nation's economy for decades. Massive renewables projects will be needed. But at the same time, difficult decisions will have to be made to protect Australia's limited supply of agricultural land from industrialisation, mining for critical minerals and waste from energy infrastructure as it becomes redundant. There are no easy answers or solutions as the world strives to make the transition to renewables before global warming reaches a tipping point. David Clawton with that report on renewables in the bush. It's coming up to half past 12. Uh, Getting quite a few texts on that issue. Uh, Someone's uh, texted in to say it's essential all the high-powered uh, voltage power lines are placed underground on farmland and all other land to reduce the risk of catastrophic bushfires and impediments to agricultural production and not to destroy lives and livelihoods and the environment in agricultural communities. Uh, that one from Barney at Batlow. Someone says, use your brains and go nuclear on sites close to demand and not at the back of whoop whoop. Uh, another text, uh, been there, done that, and there are some lessons to be learnt. You should seek legal advice about some of these contracts on uh, renewables on your, and also uh, lines on your uh, power lines on your property and tax law. This person is saying never accept the first offer. It's possible to get an extra thirty percent over the first offer, uh, and uh, he says uh, you definitely shouldn't uh, shouldn't sign that first contract that uh, comes forward. But uh, Peter's texted in from Corindai. He says, as a Liverpool Plains farmer targeted to host the Hunter gas pipeline across two farms, it's interesting to hear the alleged land use conflict with renewables. A transition line or renewable project at least won't compromise or interfere with our most important asset, uh, which he says what the pipeline will do. It'll impact potentially on the aquifer systems, the pipeline buried in uh, Corindai's town water supply, and uh, he says uh, they're going to see, or it's his view, that they will see Russian roulette played with water bores in Queensland with gas interception and auto interference, says Peter from Corindai. So a different perspective there about uh, renewables and his concerns about the uh, gas pipeline. So that's um, whole ra- And there's a whole range of other texts there. I'll try and get to a few more of them a little bit later on in the program. But before we do anything else, we should get some news headlines now. Adam Storey's here. Good afternoon. Afternoon. Um, there's been a report from the ACCC. They did a year-long uh, investigation into uh, childcare and they found that for many households it's either neither not affordable or accessible. Uh, they want the government to directly fund uh, childcare services in parts of the country that are well underserved, such as rural and uh, remote communities, rather than uh, giving the subsidies... Uh, to the parents to pay the fees. 
uh, it's how about you just fund the childcare centres so the fees are lower uh, to begin with. Mm. Uh, now, the, fe- <clears throat> the federal government is expected to respond to the uh, recommendations in that report around the middle of the year. It's a serious report for the ACCC, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah it's Yeah. 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 So I don't to... think it's just going to be cast aside no. this one. No. <laughs> it's not some lobby group. But that's been the model, isn't it? it the is... model is the parents get the money and yeah. they're, they're saying that doesn't actually work. No. Because it's, yeah. because it's uh, especially when you're looking at the city-centric nature of it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and then staffing's another issue. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the former Labor Minister and uh, ACTU leader Greg Combay is now the uh, next chair of the federal government's uh, Future Fund. That's the uh, government investment fund set up to pay uh, the superannuation plan as of public servants. Uh, former Liberal Treasurer Peter Costello to uh, term Peter Costello's term ends at the end of next month, and he'll take on the role after that. Uh, the Premier has praised police for disrupting the activities of dozens of neo-Nazis who converged on uh, Sydney over the long weekend. Um, now, they're saying under laws that they're going to be able to identify and basically publicly identify uh, who these people are because they all came into town wearing masks or uh, had their heads covered. Uh, police broke up two separate gatherings on the North Shore across uh, the weekend and um, the Premier says they will not uh, avoid public scrutiny and people who are thinking of joining these groups ought to think twice. A bit of a concerning development to mm. see that sort of stuff. Taramara. Who would have thought that <sighs> Taramara would have been a hotbed Did, for I, Nazis? I just get the feeling they're not locals. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm not sure they knew where they were. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Landlease is uh, compensating homeowners after cracks uh, were found and foundations uh, are also sinking on about 90 uh, of uh, uh, ninety homes out of 1,000 that were built at the Jordan Springs East development. Uh, the first residents moved in in uh, 2017 and they say they've been affected by localised excessive land settlement, mm. which will, um, yeah... That'll do it. Resulting cracks and a bit of sinking. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, God, last night in sport. Yeah, I know. My. Yeah. Uh, Yannick Sinner, Sinner, of course, Mm. is our uh, new Australian Open champion in the West Indies, celebrating their first victory here since 1997 with a, uh, was it an eight wicket haul? Yeah. By uh, Sharma Joseph. Joseph, yeah, incredible bowling and unbelievable. And I thought Australia might just get down there, get down to the wire with Smith on ninety-one, but mm. just they just weren't able to do it. And but all credit to the West Indians, you know, oh. incredible bowling and under the not necess- you know, not necessarily um, uh, perfect conditions for no. for that sort of bowling. But anyway, we mm. did fantastically well, and the and the team. You know, it's it reignites the old flame, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly you know? does. Yeah, well, yes. The West Indies have a new king that's today. Right. That's, that's right. Let's hope that we don't, they don't end up having four uh, incredible fast bowlers no, like they used to in the eighties. <laughs> no reprieve <laughs> from the pace. Yes, incredible. Mm. Yeah. But it's good to see him back on the on the world stage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. terrific. Because I mean, a lot of the problem with the West Indies is a lot of the really good athletes um, move towards basketball because yeah. there's more money in basketball right. and then they go to the United mm. States. Yeah. So they don't play cricket necessarily, but um, maybe that'll change. Mm. 
Oh, it's changing already. <laughs> well, I think there is more money in cricket now than there was, you know, oh, 20 years ago. Oh, there was ago. back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, mm. absolutely. With the with the Indian uh, competition as yes, well. Yes, very yeah, much so. Yeah. All right, thanks, Adam. Okay. Thank you. It's uh, coming up to uh, 24 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. And let's find out what's happening with the weather details. You unpark the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So uh, looking at some of that, are we going to... Has all the heat moved through now? We, we're looking at a bit, bit more uh, sort of milder conditions? Uh, yes, the heat might be still remaining in the western part. Um, uh, well, ne- nevertheless, we still have got heat wave warning uh, in uh, parts of the north, and it looks like it may be, uh, this heat wave condition may be easing for time being. But on the other hand, we are seeing fairly uh, humid conditions across the north and the east, and quite muggy, uh, with the dew point temperatures in, uh, exceeding 20 degrees in many parts uh, across the north and the east. And with that, we actually saw uh, record high, uh, highest minimum, uh, January, uh, January minimum temperatures in Yamba this morning, actually, uh, due to the moisture. And with this moisture, we expect uh, showers or thunderstorms forecast in the state's northeast and uh, northern inland today. And some, uh, some of the storms are already, uh, have already become severe and with a risk of heavy rainfall. So there is a currently a severe thunderstorms warning for uh, heavy rainfall uh, reaching locally intense in some parts of uh, the northern inland and the northern slopes. And for your information, Lightning Ridge have seen about 67 millimeters in the uh, in the last two hours with uh, slow-moving severe thunderstorms in the area, and we expect these severe thunderstorms warning uh, to continue on uh, with the risk of heavy rainfall locally uh, reaching locally intense uh, in the state's north uh, during uh, the rest of today, and the parts continuing into tomorrow, and even tomorrow, uh, even without severe thunderstorms, any Slow-moving showers or thunderstorms may be capable of delivering uh, heavy, uh, heavier rainfall, uh, and uh, with, with, uh, with that, either severe weather warning or severe thunderstorms warning might be possible anywhere north of Mori and uh, and the uh, northern parts of the uh, northwest slopes and plain and the northern tablelands, and possibly in, uh, extending into the far north uh, coast near Queensland border. Uh, the, it, it's all, it really all depends on where the actually trough sits, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the Queensland part. And then, uh, otherwise, uh, may, maybe a shower or two along the southern and central part of the coast uh, and uh, extending into the central inland on Wednesday, and Tuesday and Wednesday. Right, so is that the moisture coming down from the uh, extropical cyclone or is it coming from somewhere else? Uh, you are right. Actually, this moisture is uh, actually uh, coming from this extropical cyclone Kirili, uh, which is currently in the northwestern interior of Queensland. And this system is actually extending a trough uh, one uh, towards the north, uh, northern inland part of New South Wales and second one into southeastern Queensland. And these two trough systems uh, are bringing moisture from the tropical north. And that's why we are seeing this uh, risk of heavy rainfall for today into tomorrow. Right, okay. And uh, just repeating what you were saying about between 60 and 70 millimetres in a very short period of time at Lightning Ridge. So, yeah, um, uh, that's, uh, that they have certainly sound like they're copying it at Light- Lightning Ridge at the moment. And that, that, that rain, that sort of uh, could affect some flash flooding too, I would imagine. Um, that rain is, is heading where from Lightning Ridge? Where's it going next? 
Uh, yes, uh, be- because this system will be slow moving, and the, so the same uh, air- this carrier anywhere north of Mori and uh, far northern ranges and slopes and and, far, uh, and anywhere near Queensland border will be at risk for both today and tomorrow. But maybe by Wednesday, uh, as this is. Um, this system in the southeast Queensland actually is pushed a bit further north and it forms a low pressure system of maybe Fraser Island uh, and then with that the risk area of heavy rainfall will be moving north well into Queensland uh, into Queensland side so by Wednesday this risk will be gone and then during the latter part of the week we actually expected drier weather conditions perhaps with the increasing heat in the northeast quarter and the northern inland on Friday ahead of the next cold front uh, we're brushing through in the late part of the week. Okay, so when you talk about those severe thunderstorms moving through, they're moving through fairly quickly, but they are sort of hit and miss. You might get some, you might not. It'll sort of depend on just, um, you know, as it goes through over your place. Uh, yes, I mean, actually, um, it could be either hit and miss or it could be a bit more widespread in the states far north. You right. know, it really depends on uh, what, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, showers or storms we get associated with this trough system extending from extropical cyclone. And there is some risk of more widespread rainfall with the slow-moving showers rather than, you know, single cell of thunderstorms. So uh, there is a good risk and some um, uh, some model guidances indicate that you know there could be uh, possibly uh, you know potentially more than 100 millimeters of totals you know anywhere north of Mori so you know just just uh, you know watch this space okay and maybe uh, extending out to the north coast as well or not that's not that's less likely uh, well, may- maybe um, the, it's at this moment a bit less likely because uh, along the coast, the main impact area, uh, main focus area of the rainfall will be on the Queensland side rather than on our side. But never know because if the trough is situated a little bit further south, then the far north coast near Queensland border might be at risk. So, you know... And people living in the far north coast may also, you know, need to watch this space and, you know, keep you know, keep up to date with the latest warning from the Bureau. Okay, so it's uh, moving around, a bit of a movable feast by the sound of things. Uh, Juan, thanks for that. Yeah, my pleasure. It's 18 minutes to one on the Country Hour. Well, a trial is underway in the hopes of seeing greater collaboration between the New South Wales Fire, Rural Fire Service and farmers when fighting fires. Landholders are being encouraged to take part in a trial until March 31, where they do not have to register a vehicle if it's being used to fight a bushfire. They can also travel up to 100 kilometres from home using public roads. The ABC's Adrian Reardon caught up with RFS Commissioner Rob Rogers about why he hopes farmers take part and the benefits that the trial could bring. Farmers indeed are where the RFS started from. Um, you know, it, 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 the whole organisation's origins in farmers and, and they're an integral part of firefighting, particularly where you, you, know, you get in rural New South Wales and you get significant distances uh, and it can often take a long time for our brigades to get to some places just simply because of the distance. 
farmers are there they already have machinery uh, and often they can hold a fire until a brigade gets there or indeed they can put the fire out and so this is trying to acknowledge the work that farmers do but also make it easier for a farmer to be able to go you know and help his neighbor um, just down the road to make sure again we focus on stopping fires becoming problematic before they they do that so what's the incentive for farmers to take part in this well, I think the incentive is is to is to recognise the role they play, make sure that they're not burdened with additional costs through having to register um, vehicles to you know that really don't travel on the road hardly at all. The only time would be to go and actually help a neighbour and make sure that um, you know that they understand that that both the government and and the RFS values their contribution so that they can actually um, make sure they do that and help their neighbours, which, as I said to you, is what the RFS started as. It's just enabling neighbours, helping neighbours. Was Black Summer kind of an an example of seeing how landholders and and farmers use their own equipment to fight fires because resources were just stretched too thin? Yeah, absolutely. And I think they've always done it. And and to be honest, I think RFS, um, we, we moved away from the farmers and farming brigades and and to be honest i think that you know we need to reconnect with that as well so i think it's important to call out the fact that rfs probably you know needed to put some effort in to try and make sure that we work closer with with farmers but there's been a really good positive working relationship in the last few years with with farmers and uh, and this i guess just solidifies something we've been working hard um with transport um you know Minister, ministers have been very supportive and, and obviously farmers. And this just, just shows that where you can get people collaborating, working together, you can get really good outcomes that make a lot of difference for people. That's uh, RFS Commissioner Rob Rogers now there. And uh, we did want to hear what farmers thought about this. So the ABC's Lucas Forbes caught up with Deborah Charlton, a farmer based near Wagga Wagga and chair of New South Wales Farmers Rural Affairs Committee. She said there's a prime example late last year as to why these vehicles are so important to use during a fire and could continue to be used to their full potential. We did have some wild storms that came through here in December and um, there was quite a few trees alight at the time and we were very fortunate that we had some farmers that had their own private farm fire units available and they were able to actually um, curb any fires being spread out through um, stubble that's um, around this area. We're talking about this in the context of a trial that's on at the moment. So what is this trial and what's so significant about it? It's to um, try and see how many farm fire vehicles or equipment that's out there on farms that we can actually get um, covered under the, to be able to be used on uh, public roads without them being registered. And the idea is that this will actually assist the RFS um, and not be sort of an administrative burden to the RFS and have this and what we call the mosquito fleet it is. And it means that these will be private farm vehicles. They're allowed to travel with 100 kilometres of their home to any bushfire um, without having to have the cost of um, registering. Obviously, it needs to be a roadworthy vehicle, but they don't have to go through the burden of actually um, the cost of registering to be on a road. How much, how significant is that really for, for farmers though? How, how much of an assistance is that? I think it'll be a huge assistance. I think every farm generally has something in as, as far as a farm firefighting unit goes, um, but they use it personally on their own farm. Um, 
farmers are very much a united bunch of people, so they like to be able to help their neighbours. So knowing that they can legally go out on a road and go to their neighbour's fire with their small farm fire units, it's going to make a big difference as opposed to them having to wait and or go to a fire shed and get on a truck and go there. It's going to put more firefighting equipment on the ground when a fire actually starts. Deb Charlton there speaking to the ABC's Lucas Forbes. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Now to a couple of young guys who've taken over the running of the only butcher shop left in Canoundra. One's from the land with a passion for livestock and farming. The other is a trained butcher. Well, Stranger grew up on a property at Canoundra but moved away for several years and Max Benno started working in a butcher shop when he was 11. Tim Fuchs visited to find out about the uh, two friends' journey to the butcher shop together. Off this side, we'll eventually turn into a cauldron. Standing inside the butcher shop on Canoundra's main street, Max Benno remembers the day he and his friend Wall Stranger found out they now own the business. So it, it all started with uh, me and Wall. He had lambs out there, and I said, these are good lambs. Um, and we were just trying to find a way, basically. I said to him, well, let's just find a way that we can start butchering them. We'll start doing some yieldings and some photos and stuff like that. I said, go into the local butcher. He can't be open seven days a week and ask uh, if we can just cut up one day a week. Uh, Walt came in and had a chat to him. The next thing, we were on the phone to him as he was explaining the shops for sale. And I think it was three, four weeks after that, he went to auction. And uh, I think that just after the auction, me and Walt went, oh, oh, my God, I think we just bought a butcher shop, mate. Um, and I sort of threw in the corporate gig and said, give me a few months to, to wrap this up and I'll be out there. Canoundra used to have three butchers and now the butcher shop Max and Wall run is the last one in town. Wall, who's a third generation farmer on the property, says after years away from the farm, he'd always planned to move back. But running a butcher was something that had never really been on the cards. From sort of the age of 18, leaving school, I was pretty, always pretty passionate in livestock and learning the whole supply chain. So um, I wanted to go get that exposure. So I went um, up to the Northern Territory, worked on cattle stations there, uh, worked on a few um, sheep farms as well um, down south. And then I went to university in Armidale, um, where I studied agribusiness. From there, um, did a few pracs and a bit of work experience at feedlots and abattoirs, and that sort of uh, led me towards um, an export sales role, um, selling beef um, into Southeast Asia and other markets, um, and that's where I met my business partner, Max. Yeah, the whole idea was basically I always knew I wanted to go home to the family farm and value add. So tell us about how the ownership of the local butcher came about. Basically, it's comes down to my business partner um, who's actually a qualified butcher I'm not I'm, I'm the farmer but um, we both um, became just good mates in general working together selling and, and trading meat and we've we've both got a passion for sort of meat procurement and and livestock so we thought you know after a, a few chats over many beers sort of week to week that um, we might have a crack ourselves um, of, you know, doing the whole supply chain ourselves and, and taking it direct to the consumer. So with that, me coming from Canoundra, um, you know, a well-renowned prime producing area, sort of got in Max's ear over a few years and convinced him to come out um, to God's country to, um, to, to have a go, basically. But yeah, we weren't dead set on butchery. We were 
looking down other sort of avenues as well, um, like with farms markets and on-farm things. But it's sort of one of those things that was... Um, there's always that risk you're going to take, but um, me, and, me and Max sort of backed each other to sort of make it work. So, um, yeah, before we knew it, we went to auction because it was on the market in town. It was the only butcher in town, so um, we wanted to give back to the community and see a lot of potential in Canoundra itself. For Max Benno, moving from Sydney to Canoundra did take quite a lot of convincing but now there are no regrets. From the early days for me, um, being a butcher nice and early, um, I've, I've worked doing export sales to working for the big supermarkets and it's sort of a, a journey. So I, I think one of the other things that we're really discovering out here is the workforce, workforce on the farm, but also workforce in the butchery, that we've got some young blokes working for us that have a passion for it and we allow them to grow that passion and continue to use that passion, which as a young fellow, I wish we sort of had more of an opportunity to do. With some butcher shops, around the country closing their doors for good, Wall and Max know the risks of buying a butcher shop. With the competition from supermarkets, buying meat from the butcher can sometimes be more expensive. But the young butcher shop owners are noticing how much demand there is for meat from the local area. The mutton and lamb are from Wall's property, while the pork and beef are from nearby farms in the Canoundra and Cowra area. Max says the feedback they're getting from customers is that they really want to know where their meat is coming from. As we sort of get um, more into our health, people want to know what these animals are being fed, where it's coming from, the traceability of it. And we don't have all the answers. We're continuing trying to find the best ways to do everything like that. But being able to answer the question and be 100% honest about it, I think is the most important thing and what customers are appreciating. Um, and part of it is, is having a bit of fun with it. We'll have someone come in and they say, hey, we want to smoke something this weekend. And we'll take them into the cold room, show them everything that we got to. And if we've got it there, we'll be able to show them every single option for it. And the best part of it is they might even bring us in a little bit more, or bring us in a little bit of the meat they've cooked or um, send us some pictures of it, which we absolutely love. And I think the whole fun of it, of um, it's only part of the journey is providing the meat, seeing how they cook it and what they do with it and sharing it with their families is, is just amazing. Max Benno, the Canaldra Butcher, with his friend Wall Stranger, ending that report from Tim Fuchs. Let's go to Bendigo Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. 13,450 lambs, up 1,200 head. The market ebbed and flowed again. It meant there were some dearer sales across the course of the auction, particularly for neat trade lambs. However, price averages ended up similar to last week. Heaviest export lambs, 200 to a top of $259 to average 235 at a ballpark cost of 725 cents a kilo. The heavy 26 to 30 kilo lambs, 184 to 232. And the neat trade lambs, 22 to 24 kilos, 157 to 186. These categories averaging around 730 to 740 cents a kilo pushed up by some strong sales to domestic buys, which reached close to 800 cents at times. But underneath this, there was still a run of plain crossbred slaughter lambs with less polish and appeal, which processors could buy below the 700 cent mark. Decent lines of light lambs sold strongly and were often dearer at 100 to 130, going to MK bag lamb orders and restockers. In the sheep run, prices were up to $10 dear again, with good lines of mutton costing from 300 to 340 cents. Big Merino used with wool 105 to 138, crossbred used 84 to 108, general run of sheep 60 to 90 for most. 
Jenny Kelly for MLA. Dubbo Shimon Lambs. Numbers remain similar with the yarding of 11,600 lambs. It was a fairly good quality yarding with a good selection of both trade and heavyweight lambs throughout. There were large numbers of exotics penned along with good numbers of hoggets. Lightweight lambs for the processes were $8 dearer, with a 12 to 18 kilogram two scores selling from 48 to 105. Trade lambs were firm to five dearer, with the trade weight new season lambs selling from 118 to 174, while trade weight old lambs sold from 120 to 188 to average between 660 and 715 cents a kilogram. Heavyweight lambs were four to six dearer, with the 24 to 30 kilogram lambs selling from 180 to 238 to average between 690 and 745 cents. Extra heavyweights over 30 kilograms sold to 247. A few merino lambs were ten dollars dearer, with trade weights selling from 118 to 125. Lambs for the restockers were ten dollars dearer, selling from 30 to 109. Hoggets were also ten dearer, selling to 153. We have the balance of the lambs and 9,800 mutton still to be sold. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. To Wagga cattle now. Good afternoon. Wagga reached new heights at the cattle sale today as feedlots and export buyers engaged in strong bidding, elevating competition across a wide range of categories. Once again, local processors found themselves relegated to the sidelines, unable to match the prices offered by keen lot feeder buyers. In a slightly bigger yarding of 4,600, the prices for feeder heifers and steers surged ahead 15 to 25 cents. The 330 to 400 kilo heifers commanded prices from 305 to 339, while medium weight feeder steers fetched 310 to 367. A standout feature of the sale was robust demand for heavy export cattle, with processors driving prices 20 to 30 cents higher. Demand from Queenslanders for superior bullocks was particularly strong, leading heavy bullocks to sell in a range of 295 to 346, while heavy heifers topped at 334. In the cow sale, Prices lifted six to seven cents. Heavy cows range from two seventy to two eighty three. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. To Forbes cattle. Numbers lifted slightly this sale with agent yarding a thousand and fifty one head. Quality was fair with some good lines of finish and feeder cattle available along with the plainer types. The usual buyers were present and competing in a dearer market. Yearling steers lifted seven to fourteen cents with feeders paying from two ninety to three fifty eight. Finished lines to processors sold from 305 to 327. The heifer portion to feed was 10 cents better to sell from 280 to 336, while those to processors sold from 280 to 323. Heavy steers and bullocks held steady, selling from 275 to 317. Grown heifers received from 255 to 294. Cows lifted 15 cents on the planer two-score types, selling from 230 to 255. This is Van Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. And Tamworth cattle. Good afternoon. Demand remained high from processors and northern finishing enterprises with demand strong for the reduced penning of 2,000 head. Quality generally good with feeder cattle well supplied in front of all the regular buyers. Varying trends where restock weaners were cheaper. Yearling steers to restock and feed saw affirmed a slightly dearer trend. Light and medium weights 282 to 388 cents a kilo depending on breed and quality. Heavy feeders again keenly sought, 310 to 371. Heavy trade were firm, 315 to 340 cents. Medium and heavy, heavy yearlings to feed were firmed or shade cheaper, 288 to 338 cents. Trade also slightly cheaper, reaching 322 cents a kilo. 
Heavy steers and bullocks were keenly sought, 248 to 330, posting strong gains, as did the well-finished grown heifers, feeders to 326, those to process 245 to 336 cents. Cows were as much as 11 cents dear on heavyweights with three and four scores, 240 to 278 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Tamworth. You've been listening to The Country Hour. It's heading up to news time at one o'clock.